0: Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'll be speaking with Bo Weingard, a recently exiled academic and social psychologist. This is a special episode because this is the first in an ongoing series, Cancelled Culture, where I will be interviewing the cancelled. The pers- purpose of this series is a counter-signaling effort. I'm going out of my way to give a platform to those who've been canceled for one reason or another, as part of the show's ethical commitment to the pursuit of truth and knowledge. Now, I realize that in endeavoring to provide a space for the canceled, I am putting myself at some risk, potentially. That being said, I intend to exercise my best judgment in who I have on the show, and being canceled in and of itself is certainly not sufficient to be eligible for an interview. As always, I will be doing my best to discern the good faith, genuine, and credible from the nefarious. This is not an exercise in provocateurism. I will have reasonable, interesting people on, some of whom hold contrarian viewpoints, and that is not only acceptable, but necessary if our theories of politics are to move forward. So welcome to the new series and enjoy this interview with Bo Weingard. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Bo Weingard. Bo is an independent scholar. Bo, how are you doing?
2: I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, well, I'm actually really, really excited to uh, finally meet you in person. Um, You know, you obviously don't know who I am, uh, most likely, but uh, I've been following you from afar on Twitter for a very long time, and you've been like a prominent voice in. A lot of the, um, I guess, overlapping political circles uh, that we run in. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, you're, you're actually the first person that I've uh, been able to have on the show who's been canceled. Uh, and so that's a very <laughs> a very big honor for me. I'm really happy to finally be yeah. giving um, platforms to the canceled. And uh, I actually hope to have more people on who've been canceled, uh, you know, coming up soon in the future here. I have some friends who've been canceled. And, yeah. you know, a lot of them are great people, um, some of them for ridiculous reasons, some of them for more questionable reasons, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's just becoming a crazy world out there. So uh, before we get into that aspect of, of things, do you want to just introduce yourself to the audience, talk a little bit about um, where you came from in your academic background and some of the research you've been involved in?
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So um, I am very intellectually eclectic, I think you would say. I actually was into literary studies. Um, And then I just kind of became disenchanted with it because of the politics. And so I went into ultimately into social psychology, but I was more interested in evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I was told by people as an undergrad that there weren't many jobs for evolutionary psychologists. So I just picked social psychology and then I went to Florida State under the tutelage of Roy Baumeister. And that was great because he's not very happy with political correctness. So that worked out for me. Um, Yeah. And then I had, I guess I was there for seven years, I think. (laughs) It was a struggle to get a job because I had already written about some stuff that was potentially inflammatory. Um, I would say my research... Much of it was a, was uh, an extension of signaling theory into various areas, masculinity, for example, grief, uh, uh, anti-gay biases, uh, etc. And then I got interested, this was the, the fateful interest, as it were, I got interested in human variation. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing about that, maybe like 2014, 15, but I was doing the other stuff too, but that started becoming more and more interesting to me. So I would say I got into human variation and political bias. So okay. those, those two things, and that's probably what I focused on for the most part for the last five years when I'm not doing culture war stuff, <laughs> right, right, which has consumed more of my time as well, which either... That's good because we need we need to have the culture war, or I'm wasting my time. I'm not really sure which one. It depends on which day, you know. But um, so that that's what I do these days. I read a lot of history. Um, as you said, I, I I kind of was canceled, so I don't have a career. Uh, I don't have a an academic career in front of me. So I'm more into politics now.
1: Um, do you want to just go over briefly the incident that occurred at your um, sure. your uh, college?
2: So, I mean, I would say it was a long year of problems, I think. But the, um, the original incident that occurred is I, I got invited to give a talk at the University of Alabama mm-hmm. by an evolutionary group. And I thought. I was working on a paper on human variation. I thought, okay, well, this would be cool. I can sort of like lay out my ideas um, and then I'll discipline that into the manuscript, you know, because you like to kill kill the proverbial two birds with one stone. So I had started putting together this lecture. I sent it to the person who invited me. He approved of it and I thought, cool. So I went to the campus and everything was fine on the first day but then the second day apparently somebody had found my ratwiki website page mm-hmm. and for people not familiar with ratwiki they should know that it's essentially just a like a yeah it's a, a left wing hit job that doesn't even have the veneer of objectivity So it accused me of all kinds of things. But these professors, for whatever reason, decided to take it seriously. And then I think they I don't know if they encouraged their students to become disgusted with me or if the students were also sharing my rat wiki page and articles that I had written. But it turned into a little bit of a scandal. They did allow me to give my presentation Afterward, it was just, I don't know, I I stayed after for like an hour. Every question was, you know, was hostile, which, you know, that's actually fine. I don't have a problem with that. But some people yelled that I was a racist and said things that had nothing to do with the science. So that was unfortunate. Um, So it was an event that I would like to or I, I wanted to just forget but the paper decided the alabama student paper decided to write an article about it and i naively cooperated with them which i'm not sure what i was thinking but i thought okay well i'll give them my side of the story i'll send them my powerpoint but their their article was completely tendentious and kind of ridiculous i mean one of the lines that stands out to me this isn't verbatim but it's pretty close Uh, Critics say it's like eugenics, you know, it's like one of those things where, Mm. you know, it'd be like my saying critics say he beats his wife. It's like, well, who says it? (laughs) Why are you including an anonymous Anonymous anonymous, source? Yeah, exactly. So uh, and also more disappointingly, the group that invited me threw me under the bus because they they apologized to the community who felt unsafe. Now, this, I mean, it's hard to take this seriously, but they literally apologized to the community who may have felt unsafe because I gave a talk about human variation. And they also called it unscientific, although this group, uh, at least one of the people in it, approved of my talk. And I can assure anyone there was, you know, there were some speculations in there, but there was nothing like phrenology or whatever critics would Mm -hmm. say. So anyway, it was disappointing and somebody picked up on it and sent it to my bosses. So I had a meeting with my bosses at that point. That was in October. That meeting was actually reasonably pleasant. Um, You know, I I said, I'm going to continue to pursue controversial topics because that's what I think professors are supposed to do. We're very privileged and I have the right and the freedom to talk about these issues that are essential. And I didn't really get pushback. I mean, there was talk about being cautious or whatever, or judicious, perhaps. Um, I did feel as though it was unfortunate that there wasn't like a robust defense of academic freedom at that point, but there wasn't, there were no threats or anything. Mm. Um, And then around Christmas time, some pseudonymous troll started sending emails accusing me of all kinds of, you know, nefarious ideas and and desires and linking uh, all of my articles that I had written that this person found objectionable, apparently, and then linking a tweet of mine that I deleted an hour after I put it out. But I actually, I'm kind of, I kind of regret deleting it because I, I mean, like, I stand behind the, I wasn't saying anything in videos. Okay, so it was and, nothing objectionable that you're ashamed Well, of. no, it was just people were misinterpreting it because it had an analogy about parasites tearing apart a tree and comparing that to what was happen, happening politically inside the United States. And people were acting as though I was making this about black people or Jewish people and comparing them to parasites, which I wasn't. it's totally mendacious and like you have to be bad faith to make that reading of it. Mm. but that's what people were doing and because so, I, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh I was gonna say uh, actually it's interesting that that was the analogy that got you in trouble because I've been hearing a a, a larger platform, uh, Eric Weinstein make the same analogy to parasites. Uh, with reference to sort of our, our political tumult right now. The way that he talks about it is he says that, you know, the coronavirus and the, the election and all these coalescing factors came together to sort of weaken our ideological immune system. Mm-hmm. And that allowed, um, you know, I guess uh, what he, what he was referring to, and I don't remember exactly where he said this, but uh, uh, different strains of sort of parasitic ideologies Become mm. empowered, just like if your mm-hmm. immune system gets weakened because mm-hmm. you're under a lot of stress or pressure, right. uh, and, and then and then it's allowed to, to flourish where it otherwise would be suppressed by normal um, yeah. defenses.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I'd have to think. I'd, I'd have to think about the idea, but I mean the analogy is not objectionable. It's yeah, I, I was thinking. just pointing that out as yeah, like another right, person exactly. who said that's, this. It's not yeah. ridiculous. Right. Exactly. And in the context in the context of of my particular uh, tweet, I think it was like very clear that I was talking about the coming part, coming apart of America that people such as Charles Murray and others have written about with the the sort of separation of the cognitive elite from other people. Anyway, this is the tweet. I mean, you know, I I think I already worried people around my college, but this tweet then, you know, I, it was severely criticized, and, and um, my bosses were clearly not happy with me. But again, I defended myself. I defended free speech. I'm actually happy that I never capitulated or apologized for anything that I was doing. Uh, at the end of my second meeting, there w- th- so there was a lot of stuff going on, um, talk about having— independent graders for my classes because I couldn't grade people of color fairly like a lot of stuff that I thought was just ridiculous and insulting frankly they
1: they were they were saying that you were you were going to be biased against colored students because of the fact that you'd uh, published these articles on human variation i
2: think we're supposed to say students of color right <laughs>
1: oh sorry yeah i guess it's uh it's 2020
2: not yeah. 1980 let's let's be <laughs> yes whatever the appropriate nomenclature is um if you put the oven it changes it it makes yeah it, better. it makes it it makes it better um yes, <laughs> and and, and it, it's such be, because i accept the undeniable evidence of, you know, like the undeniable reality that there are IQ differences. Now, there's a debate about the causes, and that's perfectly fine, and that's an important debate. But accepting that reality, that that's just a fact. There's no dispute about that. And and to somehow hold that against me, I, I just, yeah, it was. I was not happy about that. But I I. You know, I tried to be nice about it. And if that's what it would have taken, I would have consented to that. A lot of this stuff never came to pass. I had this meeting with my bosses, and it was an okay meeting. I I certainly did not get the sense that I was going to get terminated. You know, nobody said that. Not once was there even a, you know, you got to do X, Y, or Z, otherwise you will suffer the consequences. So it just came out of the blue a month later, I think it was, or maybe two months later in March when they told me. They just, you know, uh, they came to my my office and told me. And um, I mean, I had been preparing for the eventuality of getting fired because I knew, obviously, that I was uh, talking about a lot of controversial topics and I I was – honest about my views, which most professors aren't, so they just lie about it or keep quiet about it. And I didn't want to do that. So I knew, you know, I knew that I was playing with proverbial fire, but I actually was a big shock when it happened because I thought that I had managed to save myself. Um, Yeah. So that's what happened. And like, at this point, I'm done with academia. There's just no way I can possibly get a job. I mean, My rat wiki is, like, one of the first things that come up when you search me, and even though it's disgracefully tendentious and, I mean, borderline slanderous, there's nothing I can do about it, and all it takes is one person to look at that and say, why do we want this person at our college, right? You know, we don't want this person, and things are much worse now post George Floyd's death than they were before. And they were already bad before. So, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. my academic career came to a flaming demise, uh, pretty quickly.
1: Oh, okay. So, um, thank you for, uh, bearing, bearing
2: that to us. Um, I know it's still kind of fresh, but, uh, I'm, I'm good with it at this point. I'm, I'm fully reconciled.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you saw this train coming for a long time. I, I saw it for a bit. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to get it a little bit into some of your research interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're still publishing, so you're still active uh, as an independent scholar. Yep. Um, and talk a little bit about, you know, you said that you had an interest in human variation and that that got you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, really, if you, if you look at differences, uh, between groups in, in almost any way now, unless they're yeah. very specific, you have a specific angle on it. It's pretty hard to get anything past. Um, yeah. so do you want to go into some of the the topics specifically that you were interested in, in human variation and what your, uh, your core academic research is focused on? Sure. I know, um, you've talked a little bit about, um, you know, uh, I guess not a little bit, a lot about, um, uh, you know, masculinity and, mm-hmm. you know, the perceptions of misogyny and how pervasive it is in our society and so forth. Um, so let's just get into some of those.
2: Okay. So I think we, maybe we could start with masculinity and then move on because human variation, you know, that's the, that's sort of the incendiary topic. Okay. So we, okay. We can we'll, say we'll leave the touchy one. stuff for later. Deeper, yeah, deeper Yeah. Deeper in. yeah. So mas- I got, I mean, masculinity is interesting. Um, just, sort of male rituals, male behaviors, uh, those kinds of things fascinated me. And I was really interested because Jeffrey Miller, who's an evolutionary psychologist, wrote a wonderful book called The Mating Mind. And I think I read this when I was like 19 or something. And it profoundly affected me. And the basic argument in the mating mind, this will seem like a digression, but I'm going to tie it back together. The basic argument in the mating mind was that a lot of behavior, art, uh, you know, musical performance, poetry, etc. A lot of these behaviors that are you know, culturally important to us are actually signals that communicate underlying genetic fitness to the other sex. Now, I'm simplifying a bit because he did accept a mutual mate choice idea, and he, he didn't think that it's only, like, men trying to attract women. He thought women exercise choice, and and both did, but basically that these, these cultural displays were signals designed to woo the other sex, and... I I was just captivated by that at the time. I, I, you know, I was interested in evolutionary psychology, but I had not heard any kind of arguments like that. And so I really started thinking about cultural displays, because I was fascinated with literature from my literary studies, and I just love literature, and I love film and art, etc. So, you know, I wanted to sort of crack the evolutionary logic of that nut. And I started thinking, you know, more. a lot of this stuff seems as though it's not really designed to appeal to women, but rather to appeal to other men. So if you start thinking about cultural displays throughout most of history, they seem as though they have a male audience as the intended target. So if you go back to Homer or, I mean, Homer may be more complicated, but like Thucydides or something, a Greek historian, most women, I mean, most men were illiterate too, but most more women were illiterate than men. Men were the the cultural players in classical Greece, right? Overwhelmingly. So a lot of these displays are aimed at men and, you know, it goes throughout history. Even a lot of poetry, I think, uh, you know, romantic poetry, poetry, metaphysical poetry before that, I think a lot of this was aimed at impressing other men. So so then I started, and, and then masculinity displays uh, fit in here, right? Because you start thinking, yeah, I yeah. you on a pause here?
1: Yep. So <clears throat> just to make sure that I'm interpreting this correctly, um, the idea is that there are these uh, artistic or creative displays, right, that mm-hmm. mammals do or humans and birds and others, um, and when these are employed by the male, obviously it's to attract, um, you know, mating opportunities from females of the mm-hmm. same species, mm-hmm. but his hypothesis here that, and the one that you were interested in exploring was, wow. uh, that, that in fact, uh, it's actually more, more targeted towards the other males and, and that, and, and, and the implication being that this is a, um, Uh, A status game, right? And so if you can achieve status from the other males, what's Mm -hmm. actually attracted to the females is not Mm -hmm. necessarily the display itself, but the fact that it garners high status from all the other males.
2: Exactly. Now, this is more my argument with Miller, right? So I think Miller. Miller is a nuanced thinker. He Some people don't give him credit for that, but he really is. So I don't want – I'm g- just going to simplify the view for the sake of making my difference with it clear with the understanding that I'm doing a disservice to what Miller called the cultural courtship model, right? So the cultural courtship model idea is exactly what you said. Is men are creating artifacts largely to attract women. And I'm arguing against that view by saying what you also said well, which is that I'm arguing males are you males use displays to signal traits to other males which get them status which they can then cash in with mates, right? So mm-hmm exactly as you said, it's not so much that the women are attracted to the displays, although I do think they're attracted to some of the displays, and we can go over that, but it's that they're attracted to status. So let's just think about like what seems to me the sort of purest uh, case here. Let's think about a really great writer, you know, somebody who's up there with James Joyce in prose style, and somebody who's Stephen King. Now, Stephen King's prose is not very good. He might tell good stories. I'm, I won't get into that debate. But he's clearly not a prose stylist. So you would think from a signaling perspective, why wouldn't women prefer— well, oh, uh, Yeah, so let's say that we have these writers, and the, the Joyce writer is really poor and lives in his mother's basement. And the other one's Stephen King, so very mm-hmm. wealthy and prestigious— which male would most women prefer? And I think the answer is they would most prefer Stephen King. Why? Because he has prestige and resources that he can immediately invest in the woman. And I think what that illustrates is that if you can signal to men and men give you status because the people who have more status on average in society, in any society throughout history, have been men. They have more to gain from it. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're so that's the basic idea. So the question is is can that help explain masculine displays? Like displays that we would think of as being sort of stereotypically masculine. Tattoos, for example, or risk-taking behavior, right? A, lo- a lot of these ceremonies that you see among Various extant hunter-gatherer groups, or you know, up, up the ladder of human complexity, you see many kinds of rituals that are male uh, activities where you have to show that you can handle pain, or you know, you you're courageous. You know, you go on a certain kind of hunt. You you have people throw javelins at you, and you have to stand there. Um, you get in fights, whatever it happens to be like, what are what's the point of these? And are these more similar to a Percy Shelley poem than people had previously imagined? And my my answer is, yes, they are. I mean, they're basically they're all displays aimed g- generally at men to show the possession of some kind of important trait that makes them valuable to a male coalition.
1: Mm. So they don't they don't directly signal fitness necessarily. In fact, some of them right. may actually take you down in fitness if you go through <laughs> them, uh, or you might even die. Uh, but uh, and neither neither necessarily does um, you know does Shelley either, right?
2: Um, right. I yeah. would argue that what Shelley, what a a, a great poet, is communicating. I do think that some signals are directed toward women. So I would call that like the alternative mating route. And I think that's there's, there's
1: like intelligence, creativity. I mean, even the ability to to sit down and put put your focus into something like that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Is a signal. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think it's also a signal of be, having an incredibly prodigious mind, uh, a flexible mind intelligence, I guess we'd get at. That's helpful for male coalitions right because if you're in a coalition having an intelligent male in your coalition to help you with battle tactics or just uh, help you harvest resources better that's gonna be very helpful I, I, I mean um, courage same thing right strength etc so a lot of these displays I think are, signaling the immediate possession of traits that are beneficial to male coalitions. And I think that can explain, and this may be, I think, I think is an interesting direction that uh, my colleagues and I took some of these thoughts. I think it might be able to explain anti-gay biases. Now, anti-gay biases aren't so pronounced in the West as they used to be, obviously, but for a long time in history, there were severe anti-gay biases, and they follow an interesting pattern because they're, they're more often directed at men than women. So there seems to be more hostility toward gay men than toward gay women, and specifically there's more hostility toward effeminate gay men than masculine gay men. So... One argument we made was that homosexuality, it may not really be homosexuality per se that people care about, but rather it's effeminacy that they care about. So they see homosexuality as being syn- synonymous. Uh, shoot, I lost you just for a second. Okay, there we go. Uh, They see it as synonymous with effeminacy and they see effeminacy as uh, something that's not valuable to a male coalition. Right. So if you Mm -hmm. think about a football team, you don't want an effeminate guy, not because you just hate women or effeminacy for no reason, but rather because. That male actually cannot contribute to your coalition as well as a very masculine male can. Mm-hmm. So I think that this and I, now we we did a lot of experiments on it, and I've written about it a couple of times. I, I don't I, I'm I'm not going to say that this theory is dispositive. It's certainly not. There's a lot of debate about it, but I think it's an interesting direction to take this kind of male male signaling argument and, and well, about.
1: <clears throat> I'll, I'll throw a really interesting wrench in it. All right. Uh, so I'm an identical twin so and Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, cool. Well, welcome to the club. Uh, we all know yeah. each other apparently. So, <laughs> uh, and my twin brother is gay and obvious and everybody knows this so I can say it, but, okay. um, uh, obviously, uh, I, I'm pretty heteronormative. Um, and so that's always been an interesting difference between us. It's, you know, it's impossible to really tell what the what the origin of that of that difference might have been developmentally.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: but uh, that does give me some interesting insights, I think, into the the role of like towards effeminate effeminate gay men um, in our society. Now, like you said, the U.S. has pretty much come around on this. So, right as far as I know, neither him and I didn't really witness any, and there wasn't a whole lot of direct. Um, violence or even threats of violence or even implied threats, uh, against him of any kind Mm -hmm. growing up or anything like that. But I mean, you know, even, even just being his brother, I received, you know, my fair end of, um, of, you know, anti-gay and homophobic comments and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes they were just directed at me. Um, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I do think there is something there because, Growing up, and I'm just going to say this because it's my personal experience so I can talk about it, uh, he would spend more time with the girls
2: mm-hmm.
1: when we were very young, even mm-hmm. in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And and now even as adults, I mean, if people are doing stuff, if we're going on a trip or uh, we're just working around the house and people are kind of split up into different roles, uh, he tends to gravitate towards the activities that the women are doing, whether that's cooking mm-hmm. or talking somewhere or doing something, rather than what the men are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a temperamental thing. I don't know what it says about his, uh, his value in a coalition, but it certainly signals that he's, he's not interested in being part of the men. And I think that might cause some problems.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there are data that, that suggests that this is, this is true from an early age that you generally find that you find it in women too, but we're not focusing on them. So we'll leave them out. You find it in, Uh, men who, or or boys who become homosexual, are more interested in stereotypical feminine activities, behaviors, and even friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, yeah, so I think that that's that's just a fact at this point. And so it is true that on average, homosexuals are more effeminate than heterosexual men. On average. That doesn't mean there aren't severely masculine homosexual men. Right? Yeah, yes, there are. But, right, but, and this isn't... Now, in our papers, we always wrote about physical strength and, like, courage uh, and perceptions of that, but what's interesting, what you said, I, I thought about this, and this is just rank speculation, but I do think there are probably psychological differences on average such that gay men tend to behave a little bit more effeminately in the way they gossip and and what they talk about and are interested in, that also probably causes some sort of perception that they might not be as valuable to a a masculine coalition in certain contexts. Now, I'm not saying that they are or aren't more valuable. That's a that's a sort of judgment. I have no evidence to uh, support one way or the other, but that there are perceptions of it seems pretty clear to me. And I think that's also why. Well, well, I guess, let me put it this way. One one advantage of this theory is that it can also partially explain, at least, why. Anti gay bias has declined so rapidly across the 20th century, which is masculinity is just not as important for society anymore. There aren't, there are so many coalitions you can create now that don't require physical strength and courage and what we would call traditionally masculine traits. Uh, So, for example, a chess club, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't need somebody in a poetry club. Uh, and you have police, so you don't need to protect your property. Well, you not know. for long. <laughs> yeah, well, OK, we're, we're going to defund them and then we'll we'll get back these masculine virtues.
1: <laughs> yeah, The social workers, the psychologists will move in and then yeah,
2: they will solve all the problems because crime, of course, is just caused by people who have parent, you know, issues with their parents and they're poor or something. Uh, hey, yeah. hey, he's the psychologist, not me. Yeah, that's why I'm diagnosing it. Um, yeah, so anyway, I, you know, these are some speculations about masculinity. Um, tell you the truth is interesting because I haven't thought about much of that for a long time. I, I had a paper that came out not too long ago, but I actually wrote it like two years ago. And it just, you know, it, I re, you know, I had to revise and submit to another journal. And, you know, it takes a long time before you get anything published. So I had kind of I just hadn't thought about these things for a while, but I think they're still interesting. Uh, I should say I haven't read the literature carefully on a lot of this stuff for like at least two years. So I might be a little I mean, something may have come out or interesting research I, I haven't paid much attention to because it's you know, it's not my it's not the area that I'm most interested in anymore, and you only have 24 hours in a day, unfortunately. So I can't, you know, I can't read everything that I would like to. So I should just throw that out there in case anybody's thinking, well, I've read X, Y, and Z since 2018. Maybe I, d- I don't know that literature.
1: Mm. Well, uh, just one last thought on that. At that point, you made about the decline of, um, I guess, um, male tendency male tending traits, uh, and their usefulness in our, I guess, general society and functioning and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that's a point that people have been talking about for a long time. Even the second yes. wave feminists were yep. acknowledging that, you know, there was, uh, issues with, with, um, with the, the value of men going down. You can look at this. If you look at the stagnating medium male uh, wages,
0: mm-hmm. uh, since
1: the 1970s, basically since women were introduced to the workforce, uh, you have just you know, 50%, hundred percent more competition. So, um, in addition to other factors related to obviously globalization and technology and so forth. Uh, but, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about was that actually, uh, it may be that the violence against effeminate men has gone down in part because they, if, if the stereotypically masculine traits aren't as valuable anymore,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, or if they're, The ones that are valuable that men have are also shared by lots of women and lots of stereotypically effeminate men, Mm -hmm. then they actually move to a position where they are contributing as much. So for example, I've heard of research that indicates, and I don't know how accurate this is, that that gay men actually make more on average in the marketplace Mm -hmm. um, than straight men. And there are many reasons why that might be the case, but That that would be a way that they're contributing to a coalition that is a company and uh, and actually earning high status, whether if they're producing really well, earning a lot of money Mm -hmm. and therefore they're useful, even though Mm -hmm. in a in a prior social structure, you know, they would have been relegated to like picking berries or something.
2: I'll agree with everything except for the last part, which sure I sure, sure. I'll just say <laughs> yeah. credit for that. But yes, no, no, I mean, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right, is that their actual objective coalitional value is higher now in the same way that women's coalitional value is higher than it than it used to be. And, and by the way, this might be able to explain some aspects of prior, because I don't think there's a lot of misogyny now, but previous you know misogyny is that it's not really that men don't like women because that's obviously silly i mean men really like it's completely absurd it doesn't even make sense evolutionarily yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense but what men didn't like for a lot of human history is women trying to participate in typically male domains probably because on average men were better in those domains so like if you think of Uh, go all the way back to to ancient greece for example i mean they had a, a system worked out that seemed to make a lot of sense men have to fight and and risk their lives for the for the the polis women have to risk their lives giving childbirth and take care of the house men are better at fighting a battle as it was fought in ancient greece like there's, you know, upper body strength. The, the, the overlap between men and women is virtually zero. I mean, men are just so much stronger in the upper body that for, for these kinds of uh, styles of fighting, men were so much better. They were also probably had uh, psychological propensities that made them better fighters. So I think there really just was objectively, on average... Men were better at a lot of those things and therefore they didn't want women to participate in them. And on top of that, women's live lives are actually in some sense more valuable on average to a coalition because they can have children. <laughs>
1: and well so everybody's I, known this. I mean, this yeah. is always why, you know, women and children go first. Right. Uh, it's men are expendable. Just that's yeah, the way it exact, is. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and you think about like, uh, you know, I, I say this in my class or when I used to teach, I'd say like, imagine that we have a coalition and we have two guys and 50 women. We're fine. Those two guys can have sex with all of the women and they will be kids for the next generation. If you reverse that scenario and you have 50 men and two women, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and so, I've- Yes.
1: Well, I was just saying it, you know, obviously living in times where your whole tribe could get wiped out by yes. an invader or a famine exactly. or whatever. Yeah. That's a real probability.
2: Yeah. That's and It's a serious, you know, it's a, it's, you, you don't want to mess around as, as a, like, I, I think people, we take the, the sort of comfort and safety that we have. So for granted that we can't understand what it would be like to inhabit a world in which, in a year from now, some foreign group of men might just conquer you, kill you, and rape the women, right? Everybody. Like, yeah. Or we just can't understand And enslave that. all your kids. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, look, like, if you're living in one of those societies, the, the idea that you're being misogynistic would just be ridiculous. Like, what? Like, we have to worry about actually getting killed here. We don't have time for, you know, you're— your proto-critical theory or whatever it might be. So anyway, I mean, that's spe- some of that speculative, but I actually do think like it, I think it's a good thing, by the way, that people are much more tolerant of homosexuality. Obviously. I mean, it's just, uh, if we can live in a safer world in a world in which, Uh, effeminate men and women have high coalitional value and therefore people like them and and we can collaborate and stuff. That's a good thing. I like that. So I'm not saying I want to go back to ancient Greece where you could be like, you know, like casually misogynist by today's standards, but I'm just pointing out those norms served an important purpose at that time.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, so a few things. I mean, one is that it's not entirely clear that male physical, uh, asymmetries are outdated in, in modern combat. Sure. I mean, obviously you yeah, can absolutely. do a lot from a distance, mm-hmm. but I know, for example, that the Marines have done studies on, you know, putting women on the front lines and, uh, in, in their training exercises, the, the women just, they, they don't score as well on reaction time mm-hmm. on force use of force on all, all kinds of things. And so, um, that has nothing to do with their value in terms of contributing to the military, but it does in terms of, um, you know, pushing forward, like physically, um, rigorous, uh, pushing through ri- physically rigorous challenges. And, you know, in, in times of battle of war, where it's life and death and the seconds, every second does count. If you've right. got a slightly slower reaction speed time or, yeah. um, you know, someone tries to take a gun away from you and you can't resist them because you don't have the upper body strength, that that becomes real. And um, I, yeah. I think there's this misconception that people get into where if you say that there are these physical differences, that one gender is somehow better than the other, one sex right. is better than the other. Right. And the uh, the problem with that is, uh, you, you know this from, from evolutionary psychology, is that there has to be a 50-50 trade-off between being a man and a woman, otherwise we wouldn't have that balance in our species. And so on the long run, uh, there has to be your expected, um, your expected return on being a man or being a woman has to even out, even if the average male and the yes. average women are quite different.
2: Yeah. The expected fitness return has to be, uh, I mean, you can get something where you get, per, you know, like permanent sex, sex skew a little bit, but yeah, I mean, basically like it has to even out. Otherwise it, you wouldn't have the split that we have. And that's I, no, that's I'll,
1: fitness. It that doesn't
2: necessarily mean happiness or, that might not be our, or our values. Like we yeah. might have different values. You know, I, I don't think our, our values should derive obviously from, you know, what, what makes fitness sense. But I, I completely agree with the, the point about there are clearly places where men on average are, are still just better and i think it's one of the one of the unfortunate and perfectly ridiculous in my opinion uh, de- declines in our uh, in our discourse is our inability to say that without getting in trouble right i mean like look men are going to be better at some things on average women are going to be better at some things on average and that's okay yeah that's fine That's okay like i'm better than some people at some things, and I'm a lot worse at some things, and that's okay. It doesn't have to, uh, you know, that that doesn't mean that that justifies keeping women out of the military. What it does mean is that you have to be careful about that, and you have to think about how are you, are you lowering standards that need to be there for a reason, for example? Or
1: or even keeping them off of the front lines. I mean, there's no reason to think dogmatically about this. If you think that, there, uh, there's no that it's a ridiculous policy. Then do the tests, conduct some research, and right. find
2: out. Yeah, exactly. Totally, totally agree. And and I mean, I've actually read reasonable arguments uh, for uh, I, uh, banning women from combat. Now, you 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 could have women doing other activities, of course, and contributing to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, but not in the the actual combat. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying there are reasonable arguments there. And I think it's a disservice to the complexity of these problems to just get angry at people when they say these things and try to think them through. I, I just think that that does everybody a disservice because we lose out on these nuanced conversations that we have to have.
1: So yeah. Or missing misattributing people's uh, intentions. Yeah, exactly. As is often yeah. the case.
2: Yeah. Like, like, look, I would rather, if you, if you told me you're going to be stuck with somebody, uh, for a day in a room and you just have to talk to this person. I would say I would rather be stuck in there with a middle-aged woman. That would be my pick. Right. The, the, and that's seems to be what most people prefer. If you ask them, it's like a middle-aged woman because they're nice. They're not going to be violent or aggressive. Like,
1: right. Oh, you mean like, so if you get a random person yeah. and you have to choose like the profile of this yes, person, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Interesting.
2: Yeah. So, I've, I mean, I, I've thought about it. They all that.
1: want to talk to like grandmas or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, well, 40, 45 year old okay, okay. mothers, right? That's all what right. they, and it makes, it totally makes sense. And so, like, in many ways, people prefer women. In some mm-hmm. ways, they prefer men. Like, if I need somebody to build a house for me, I'm going to pick men on average. N- not because I don't like women, but because men happen to be better at that. Yeah, I'm, ha- sure, some- I'm
1: sure there are women house builders who could kick my ass at anything.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'm one of the weakest males I know. So mm-hmm. I, have no del- <laughs> I have no illusions about the fact that there are plenty of women who could kick my ass. But on average, I, this is another thing I say to my class. I say, OK, imagine you have to pick somebody to fight to the death in, a, in an iron cage. Are you picking a woman or are you picking a man? Now you might pick a woman and then get Ronda Rousey and get your ass destroyed, but on average, the the appropriate decision to make, of course, is that you would rather fight a woman. Obviously, yeah, right? it's,
1: so, it's something like 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 the average man is like stronger than something crazy. Like ninety percent of women are
2: so right. Ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like I. I I'm even one of the weakest males and I, I think I could probably win a fight against the average woman. And I'm like, I, I must be <laughs> you're not, not setting a, a high bar for yourself there, man. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, like, I'm literally Give yourself probably, a little more credit. No, I don't deserve you're it. There, so interested
1: that. in masculinity,
2: but you can't fight. Come on. What is this? I, I have, uh, my, I actually, I express my masculinity through like chess or something, you know? Okay. So more <laughs> cerebral. Yeah, yeah. Cerebral masculinity, yeah, uh, there tactics in battle or something. Yeah. That's how I, well, of course, military you. strategies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Okay. Um, so where, as somebody who's now been canceled, um, yep. and you know, I haven't read all, I'm going to admit I haven't read all of your tweets and I haven't read all of your research that you've published. So sure. there might don't be some stuff you. in there that maybe I don't agree with and maybe oh. I'll regret this later. I have no idea. Um, But I'm not saying that to accuse you of anything. Sure.
2: Um, No, I I totally understand.
1: But uh, what do you think, is there a solution to this long term in terms of being able to continue to have a thriving intellectual discourse? Uh, And because I have some ideas about what some of the solutions might be. I, I, I don't think that returning to the institutions or trying to take them over again or something like that uh, makes any sense for the people that have already been ousted or yeah. in the club in the first place.
2: Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts? W- let me comment on that. The first part that you said, because I think it's an it's an important thing and then move on. So one thing that's unfortunate about getting canceled is that. Other people have to be worried about associating with you. And I'm not saying you're actually worried. I'm on here, obviously. But because they're ready to be canceled. Yeah, (laughs) because they're, you know, you, you can't expect somebody to read every tweet that I've sent and every article I've written. And so if you're using a heuristic, that's just, well, this guy got canceled, He has a rat wiki. He must be a bad person. Exactly. Maybe he really did. He must have said something bad. And, And,
1: and, you know, honestly, the average person hears that and they're not going to take any time to go look. Exactly. They're just going to say, oh, you're no platforming him. He's probably a racist. He's probably a sexist. He's probably an asshole.
2: Exactly. So that's one, one unfortunate aspect to the getting canceled thing. It's just you become radioactive for a lot of people quite understandably because they don't want to get tarred with the guilt by association uh, phenomenon so so that's one thing now yeah i don't i i think i i think social sciences and academia are are they're just too far gone like i, I spent a lot of time thinking the best strategy was to reform from the inside and to push as far as one could push, but be realistic about it. But what I've seen in the past two, three years, and especially in the past couple of months, has persuaded me that that idea is, the the time for that is over. It's past, unfortunately. And I think One thing that I would emphasize that people really don't understand is how much self-censorship there is in academia, especially like in the social sciences. So I know many professors, obviously I'm not going to name names, but I know many professors who privately share opinions quite similar to mine, which I consider perfectly reasonable, Um, or if they don't agree, they would say, yeah, it's like, it's a reasonable, a lot of your ideas are reasonable, but they're not going to say that publicly because they understand how things work. It really is like living in a religious society in which you have the orthodoxy and there are lots of people who don't believe it, but they don't say so publicly. So privately people get together and be like, yeah, it's ridiculous or whatever. This is silly, but People are too afraid to challenge it publicly. And so you get this sort of surrealistic, dualistic world in which you have these people who all kind of know better, but they're quiet about it. And then you have this other segment of people who are zealous defenders of the orthodoxy, and they have outsized influence because people are afraid to challenge them publicly, etc., and that's how that's what social science is right like right now. I mean, there's just no breaking through the cocoon that they have created now. I don't. Even, I think the journal system is pretty much going to be lost to people who write about various controversial topics because one thing that really disconcerted me that I've seen over the past couple of months is the trend of trying to get articles retracted because you don't like them because right. you don't like their politics instead of uh you know like I think you should reserve Well
1: there is a there's a sorry there's a a, a a a study on police uh, use of force yes. that Michigan State polled yes. because uh because people just didn't like the conclusions of the yes. study yes. there was nothing it, wrong with it it was methodologically fine the data was right. fine the researchers were credible they just were like, "Well, this is counter narrative, and if we talk about this, then it's a problem, and people are reporting it, so we're going to throw it away."
2: That 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 incident was the one that made me the most sort of depressed because it was it was uh, purported to be uh, an author, <laughs> the author himself, or the right. authors. They caved. Uh, they caved, and they released this statement in which they blamed Heather McDonald for misrepresenting (laughs) their results, but they didn't specify how she had misrepresented them. For talking about them. Right. But let's say she had misrepresented them. As an academic, I can tell you that your results get misrepresented incessantly. Like, Like, that's just what happens. You publish a paper, people are going to misrepresent it. That's... You know, th- there's no need to retract something because of that. So, yes, I mean, that's really depressing. And I see this um, there's this new this this Twitter page. It's like anti-racist science. And, and it it went from like 800 followers to like 10,000 in a night, as far as I could tell. And th- they have this document where you can link articles that you think are racist and problematic, and they will go after them to try to get them retracted. So you people might think, well, only a few articles end up getting retracted. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. It instills fear in editors, and they're not going to be willing to take a chance on your article because they don't want the mob to come at them. So Mm -hmm. every article that gets retracted you figure there are probably 50 more that aren't going to get published because everybody's too afraid to touch them now.
1: So, I mean, I, I I can hear the refrain in my head right now. And, and, and it goes, it goes, uh, you know, why, why would you try to publish something if you think it might be racist? You know, I, I think that's, that's sort of the, the boilerplate response that you get from people who, Think that this isn't a problem, or I think that it's overblown. Um, They just say, "Well, why don't why?" If they think it's might be racist, then obviously there's an issue with whoever was writing it, because you know how how would you not just be obviously uh, anti-racist
2: all the time? Somebody, I mean, I know people have looked at this, but like I I think this deserves a lot more attention even than it gets. Which is that the word racist is almost utterly meaningless at this point in history because the people who use it as a bludgeon to smite their political foes have used it way too often. And so now perfectly empirical assertions are called racist. So, for example, if you say – if you even point to data that show that there's a massive disparity in violent crime – between blacks and whites that is enough to get you called racist at this point in history and that is a serious problem because now we have this concept that's like you
0: can't
1: talk about facts you can't talk about the truth how are you going to solve any problems if you can't talk about anything
2: you can't because you can't talk about it and and yeah so that's the problem is like racism i mean like what's ironic, perversely ironic, I would say, is that the one form of explicit racism that we have in our society, to my knowledge, is affirmative action. That is, the explicit preference for people of color by universities and it is quite large. I mean, if you look at the 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 sort of benefit that you get as a black applicant over a similarly situated white or Asian applicant, it's quite remarkable. That is flat out racism by any definition of racism. On the other hand...
1: Yeah. Institutional, claim, systemic, whatever you exactly, want to say. About it.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, the claim that there are differences between blacks and whites on average that are partially genetically caused. That is not racist. That is a scientific hypothesis. However, one of those is practiced and applauded by progressives. The other one is called racist. Now that, there's something perverse about that. Uh, so that's the problem with this. It's like, yeah, of course if you know like if you wrote a manuscript and you actively, Encouraged the destruction of American Jews. That would be racist. You shouldn't get that published. If you wrote a manuscript and you said American Jewish people have an IQ that's roughly ten points higher than Gentiles, we think there's partial genetic causation. That's not racist, and we should be allowed to publish it. And then we should debate it the way we debate anything else. Um, so, so that's. But I just. After the George Floyd death and the, the, when the protests started taking off, you saw it, it was an opportunity for, for progressives to flex their muscles and to take power, and they did not squander that opportunity. I mean, like, in some sense, you have to tip your cap to them because it, it was really impressive how quickly they used that. To get a bunch of retractions, to get more institutional power, to get these insane dur- amounts of
1: money. By the way, insane donations. amounts of money, absolutely like insane amounts. Like billionaires yeah. donating yes. to,
2: you know, these ridiculous groups that popped up like three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, and and you have these journals, Nature, coming out with all of these, you know, anti-racist articles in the New England Journal of right. Medicine, as if that has anything to do with science. Right, and I'm just like. Do you know, like that's if you want to do that in your private time, fine, but that's not what we're doing, or in the anti racism journal, I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, exactly. There <sighs> must be five of those journals anyway. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, we're not, I, I'm with you, in other words, uh, put, put a short point in a very well, long way that so, we're not going to reform the institutions from the inside at this point.
1: Okay. So yeah, like I said, I, I think we're mostly in agreement on this point. I'm going to try to push back a little bit here, so it's not just uh, us saying, yeah, I agree to each other. Um, <laughs> Fair uh, enough. I, I I actually I don't necessarily agree with your assessment. I don't think, uh, at least, short to medium term, like I don't I I don't think that the general public is on board with this, and I do think that despite all the media suppression, uh, and just silence about what's happening because they just they just say well we're just not going to say it and then it's not real um i think the general public does see through a lot of the veneer you know a a lot of the the um the malicious tactics a lot of the uh the engine blah 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 blah. i'm looking for genuine, disingenuous disingenuous yeah that's what i'm looking for (laughs) a lot of the disingenuousness and um and and just the emptiness of these movements and also that they they generally aren't aren't being operated by the the people that they're claiming to represent. I mean, Black Lives Matter is is run by, you know, there's obviously black people in charge of Black Lives Matter, but it's yeah. also run by a cup like a bunch of Jews and you know other other random uh, white people. So it's not and, – and most of the, the foot soldiers on the ground at, at the protests, at the riots, whatever you want to call them, the Antifa people, the, the, however you want to slice these groups of people that are out in the streets, whatever you want to call them, uh, it's, not, it's not like the majority of, uh, of people of color are even interested in these kinds of things or necessarily even in those groups. It's, it's very much like a bourgeois, uh, like middle class, upper middle class white movement
2: yeah so uh, okay so i i think i think there's
1: they're all college educated yeah i
2: think there's at least a little more than a little truth to that i i would push i would push back a little bit in this sense i i hear that argument often but i i i think that it where it's probably wrong is that it is better for even the average African-American to have these kinds of movements constantly pushing for them to have more prestige in society. I think there's a, a very understandable reason that African-Americans vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, in other words. So let's just take that. Like, they are having their needs peculiarly attended to. Now, you, we can say, well— a lot of this is sort of like intra-bourgeois white signaling and, and sort of status competition. It is, I agree with that, but they're proclaiming the sort of nobleness, purity, and you know, we, we should worship this group of victims, right? And if you're in that victim's group, I don't think it's unreasonable for you to be like, you know what? I like this. I like that people are talking about us as if what we say has more value than what other people say, and as if we are like the most uh, important group in this social system. Yeah.
1: And, and you should be elevated and you should be given all the opportunities yes. Yes. and you should the get good jobs resources. and the nice titles and yeah, the degrees. Exactly. exactly. We should just get you on all the boards and, you should publish more of your art and like whatever you're doing is just amazing and we need to
2: promote it. Right. And so, so I, I think that it certainly
1: could cause some problems if you're uh, not in those groups.
2: Yes. If you're not in those groups, you can see why you might get a little bit angry after a while. And like these, these, uh, the, this sort of, uh, painful, poignant reflection from these white elites about why white people are mad with Democrats and voted Trump. It's just so comical to me. Is it really that hard to figure out why a white man might be like, yeah, no thanks. I don't want the Democrats. (laughs) I mean, we're the most loathed if you, if you had to take one group and say, who's the most explicitly hated group in our society? It's white men. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a lot of power. Obviously, we do. But in terms of explicit conversation, there is more explicit denunciations of white men than any other group in society. And it's actually not in any way merited when you actually look at white male behavior in modern society, which is some of the most noble, tolerant behavior in the history of the planet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think every race has had amazing contributions to world history and so forth. Um, But I, you know, I, I, I go I go many different directions with this because this is something that I you know am aware of and i I see it around me and I feel it in myself and uh, it's hard to know what to do about it I know that some societies like I hear and I haven't done a lot of looking into this but so but I hear that in South Africa for example since the end of apartheid um, they've gone so far and extreme the other way that it actually is starting to become very I guess disfavorable to be white mm. in that that society. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I don't know, I I guess what I'm saying is like, uh, I keep hearing from, you know, a lot of people say, well, okay, these are two white men. They're talking on a, on a podcast together. You know, they're both, uh, well-educated for whatever that's worth, um, (laughs) anymore. Uh, (laughs) and, and so obviously they have some levels of level of privilege, um, and they're talking about these issues of, 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 white privilege and, 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 um, and black movements and so forth. Uh, I think <clears throat> one, I think a lot of this is actually just projection from the elites. Uh, I see a lot of people who sort of, they do this thing where they climb up the ladder and then they're, they're pulling it up from underneath them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll see these rich white guys who will, uh, CEOs and so forth who, you know, have already been made their success, people like Mark Cuban and so forth, and then and then they're going on and lecturing the rest of society about how, you know, uh, minorities can't get ahead and everything's been set up too easy for white people. And it's like, wait a minute, man, I think you're talking about your life, not mine. Right,
2: right, right. <laughs> you know, well, yeah.
1: The, the response is like, look, look, there are a small percentage of white men who are extraordinarily successful and they're way more successful than everybody else. And yes, if you look at the most successful people in the world uh, or not in the world, at least not in the world, in the United States, they're m- a large, large percentage, overwhelmingly, they're white men, yeah. right? There's yeah. also a lot of Jews on that list. Yeah. What do you make of that? You know, uh, they're only two well, percent of the population. So I know, but I so I, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily that the that every in- inequity is the result of some sort of evil system.
2: Well, as I, I say often, disparity does not equal discrimination. So uh, I, I mean, the the it's not even really like prima facie discrimination. I mean, in fact. If you look throughout the history of the animal kingdom in general, you get variation. That's sort of the <laughs> that's how nature rolls. There's variation, groups, sexes, ages. nobody's going to be the same. You're going to have some kind of differences and that's okay. What we should concern ourselves with, of course, are differences that are caused by unfair, uh, Prejudice is really unfair, di- explicit discrimination we should certainly eliminate, but we have. The only kind that we have in society now is explicitly in favor of African-Americans. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't racist humans. There are, obviously. It doesn't even mean that there aren't obstacles that certain groups have to get through that other groups maybe don't have to, although I'm more skeptical of that than most people. But it does mean that we don't have explicit discrimination and that, yes, it's interesting that we get—I think about it like this. Like, you gave the Mark Cuban example. I'll give, like, the Ezra Klein example. I think it's interesting because you get these elite whites who—I mean, Mark Cuban's a bit different because he can actually point to economic success and say, you know— I created X businesses. I own the Dallas Mavericks. I do this for them, etc. Well,
1: yeah, I'm not saying his wealth was ill-gotten or anything. Oh no, I'm I don't close to that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I,
2: I understand, but it's it's different with like, let's say you're an Ezra Klein or a Michelle Goldberg, you know, one of these prominent white journalists who's constantly talking about racism and how you know, like, uh, sexism, etc. So then, the the question that follows naturally is, why should we listen to you? Why should I listen to you, Ezra? Like, what gives you the right to lecture us about life? Why should I listen to you, Michelle Goldberg? And a lot of these people can't say, well, you should listen to me because I'm smarter than you are, because they pretend not to care, like not to think that's true, <laughs> right? Yeah, they pretend not to. Think that I, I'm actually just smarter than you are, and I write better. So what well,
1: they this say? This is my favorite. My favorite thing about the intelligence debate, where they're just like, "Oh,
2: everybody's smart." It's like, no, yeah, no, exactly. They're not. I know, and it's so it's so condescending. I, I just, I really dislike that that tendency, but. It leads to this interesting need to justify your status, right? Because if, if you're Michelle Goldberg and you're getting paid a good chunk of money to write at the New York Times and you're not smarter than everybody, then why, why do people listen to you? And the answer is because she's morally better than you are. Like, that's the ultimate justification that they would give is that they're aware of the sort of pervasive racism and sexism that plagues society. And because of that, because Mm -hmm. of their moral enlightenment, you should listen to them. And I think that's how they justify their own status to themselves, too, is yes, I, I eat with famous people and I have a lot of money and I live in New York. But I deserve it because I'm a morally great person who's talking about all of these problems that the sort of benighted masses are too blind to see. That That's a, that's a hypothesis, of course, but I well, think it works well. It,
1: it, it's also that you just have to realize, if you're self-aware at all, that if you're in that level of privilege, that obviously most other people don't have anything close to that in terms of their influence, in terms of the lifestyle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the money. So right. – so, I I mean I, I just I don't want to go freudian on this but like I feel like they're just paying off a of guilt
2: you know a lot oh, of this is
1: just them because they can't say I don't deserve this I'm not actually yes. that much better than everybody yeah, else Yeah I agree you know I just came from a good family and I happen to have the right social networks and right. I went to the right college I have good like what Yeah So <laughs> so you know it's just like um I I don't even necessarily agree that people like Ezra Klein and Michelle Goldberg are necessarily smarter than than um than you whoever this you is i i i i don't have a a great grasp on like their intellectual capacity just from their writing which is mostly what i know about them obviously Ezra built um vox so that's pretty impressive dude Uh, yeah
2: i'll tip my hat to him right right
1: uh but there are certainly other people who are of equal or better intelligence who don't have a voice yeah absolutely you're saying you're saying that your point there was just that, though the reason they're allowed to have a platform in a mainstream media outlet is because of the fact. I mean, other than Ezra founded his own, um, is because of the fact that they fit the right moral orthodoxy. And obviously, if if Vox was a right wing outlet, it would be treated totally differently.
2: Sure, but but I mean, it's 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 not a it's not exactly that too because I. I'm a little less skeptical than you are that Ezra Klein and say Michelle Goldberg are more intelligent than most people. They are. They're they're talented. Well,
1: I, I would say most people, I would just say I would just say like I just know for a fact that there are lots of other people that are probably around or even more intelligent who oh, are not sure. at very good stations. And and obviously you can always say like, well, they made different choices or or right. whatever. I mean who knows how
2: much randomness there is. But like oh. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely yeah. agree with that. So so they're not it,
1: necessarily the best for that position.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I think uh, probably not <laughs> both of them are are bad on certain topics. Of health, I'm, health of journalism. Yeah, and... I'm a little uh, more sympathetic to Klein than a lot of my you know conservative friends are. But um, I, I see his blind spots. Um, b- but yes, you have the right moral orthodoxy. You have the right beliefs. And also that that is, I think you're right. I I don't think this need be Freudian. I think it is to assuage their guilt because how do you, you know, it does cause consternation to recognize that actually you're the privileged person. You're always talking about white privilege, but you're the one who's privileged. You have. Look in a mirror. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you, do you think like, uh, I mean, if we compare the amount of privilege like Ezra Klein has, to the amount of privilege somebody who's white, who was born in the hills of West Virginia has, is not even close, right? <laughs> so I do think it works to assuage that guilt. You have to say, well, I'm, I'm morally just and enlightened, and I'm using my platform to enlighten other people. And therefore, I, if I don't deserve this, at least I'm making good use of it, Right. And that almost increases the moral fervor of these kinds of people. Um, and I think moral fervor is scary. I, I, I think it's something that the more you look at history and and interesting analyses of human psychology, the more you find that moral fervor is one of the most dangerous human motivations. It, it causes vastly more suffering than, say, sociopathy or something, because sociopaths, you know, you, you get a few of them, they do terrible things. It's it's awful. But to get a, a, a society of people to consent to atrocities, you need moral fervor. You need a narrative that says that what they're doing is just, right? And that's why moral fervor disconcerts me in the fact that our a large chunk of our intelligentsia are captured by this moral fervor that we call wokeism for short, you can say that's unfair, but it's a good term, I think, for that, that disconcerts me because it it will start to justify more and more behaviors that otherwise wouldn't be justifiable, and just an example, canceling people. I think if you you didn't have this moral fervor and you asked, should—I'll just take me as an example— should somebody who gets very good teaching evaluations and is remarkably productive for a scholar, for a young scholar, should they be fired for their views? Most people would say, no, of course not. That's unjust. But when you have that moral fervor and that, wait a second, they're saying something that could be harmful to this sacred group and therefore it is justified. That's scary. That's when people start getting hurt. And when you start, violating important norms due process rule of law etc
1: so this is actually something that i wanted to 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 get into because um it's really frustrating for me when i talk to even my some of my closest friends about this uh i obviously most of the people that i know i'll just say are on the left and Mm -hmm. um they identify with the left they're voting for joe biden um very affirmatively and um uh when i you know, I've, I've been following say the culture war since maybe I don't know summer of 2016 mm-hmm. somewhere around there and um, and then I got really tuned in after uh, Trump won the election and I realized that uh, all the polls didn't really matter and the New York Times didn't know what they were talking about um, and uh, since then I've been mostly like floating in like different IDW circles and so forth. So I've been following a lot of people that have been canceled. I followed a lot of the Brett Weinstein experience when that first started uh, to hit off at Evergreen and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talk to my friends and family about this, they say that they just don't think cancel culture is a problem. Mm-hmm. And they think that all the people who are getting canceled probably deserve to be canceled. Mm-hmm. And and also, the other thing I hear is that even if they don't deserve to be canceled, that um, they're all... Uh, from privileged groups and, mm-hmm. and high status yeah. positions. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that they're canceled because they're right. going to be fine anyway. Right. And it, it just infuriates me because it's just not true. Like none of it is true. Not but only is I know it... people who are getting canceled who are not high paying positions. They don't have right. any backup plans. They're not right. well networked to just go walk into some other job. And they're not atrocious human beings either. They're not saying horrible things. They're right. just falling into this, this mass hysteria that you you were talking about—they're just becoming another casualty in in this fervor.
2: Yeah, and yeah,
1: It's it's so frustrating because the
2: average person they just don't care. I, I mean, it's interesting. So I'll I'll work my way into that. Just the the the, the argument that the person is privileged, therefore rules of fairness don't matter. Yeah, this is, is
1: kulakism. That-
2: yeah, we can, exactly. He can seize your
1: farm because you're successful. It's so very
2: disconcerting to me. People said that about Brett Kavanaugh. Like, mm-hmm. who cares? You're not, you're, you know, like, yeah. you're not guaranteed a spot on the Supreme Court. And it's like, no, you're not. Yeah. But if yeah, you as if he was hard, entitled to it, right? And it's like, if you worked hard and somebody lies about you, that shouldn't cause you not to get the job that you earned. And so it's just this really weird and yeah, you're right. Like this. I mean,
1: you're talking about people's livelihoods. You're talking about their lives.
2: Yeah. So location is your life. Like, yeah. And so like in my case, for example, mm -hmm. I'm not making a lot, I I was never making a lot of money. I'm hugely in debt because I was in college for 10 years of my, more than 10 years of my life. And I don't have a, it's not as if I had a backup plan, (laughs) right? You know, like, I worked really hard to get a PhD in the field that I like so that I could do what I love, namely be a professor and teach students. And, you know, it's terrible to lose the opportunity to do that. And I'm sure people like Colin Wright and Noah Carl and Weinstein and Hyene, all of those people feel the same. It's it's and none of them. And I know all of them, at least a little bit. And some of them I'm good friends with none of them are bad humans. None of them think that we should be mean to people. None of them think we should discriminate against people. What they do think is that we should be able to talk about scientific hypotheses without losing our minds. And we right. should be able to talk about things that are controversial because that's precisely what academia was supposed to be about. That's what the people in academia pretend they care about. And yeah, it is. And I I mean, the other thing I would say about the the sort of cancel culture phenomenon is it's not just the people who have been fired. We're warnings to everybody else. And so I'm, I'm in the core line. Yeah. I mean, even uh, uh, I would say more like the. Um, the head that got cut off and put in your house so that, you know, not to mess with the mob. Right. Right. The dead horse in the bed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a good one. It's the dead horse in the bed. It's like, look, if, if we'll fire this person, you know what we'll do to you. So, so keep in line. Right. And so that's what worries me is just the sort of terrorizing effect that it has on discourse and professors. And as I said much earlier, there really is this dual world of people who all kind of get that the the sort of official stuff is BS, and they talk to each other, and they're like, yeah, it's kind of BS or whatever, but they're afraid to say so publicly. Now, I'm not comparing 2020 United States to the Soviet Union. It's not that bad, obviously, but there are the parallels that there, there's just like, a group of people who know that all of the official narrative stuff is kind of BS, but they don't want to say it publicly because they realize if you do, you may lose your job, you lose your prestige, people don't want to work with you anymore, etc. And so you have this large group of people who private but can't share them publicly. That That is a terrible state of affairs to have an intellectual world in which you cannot talk about your best guess at the truth on some topic or your hypothesis about topic y x whatever you know i mean that's just everybody loses when you can't do that
1: yeah you've got uh, preference falsification yes. and that creates shared knowledge problems and yes. coordination problems
0: yeah.
2: Yep.
1: And really this is a game theory issue because if you get enough people who object to whatever the, the false narratives are that are being promulgated um, I mean this is the idea about you know why why everybody all, all these people that I'm friends with and including myself who are sort of free speech advocates are always saying this like look the, the problem is that you can't actually uh, if you don't get one person if you don't get a domino effect of people actually saying what they what they think, yeah. Then, uh, then um, nothing. You know, it it'll just go on this way. It, yeah. It's a it's a know.
2: collective action dilemma, right? Yeah. Because it's it's. And the first person for, who speaks up
1: gets their head chopped off. Exactly.
2: So. Right. It would be better for like all of us. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it would be better for all of us if we all came out publicly and said, "Look, we all think this. Mm-hmm. Like, enough is enough. Stop this bullshit." Problem is, it's better for each individual if some idiot like me does it and then gets taken out, right? And I stupidly believed, I naively believed that I would somehow be magically protected by norms of academic freedom. Like, I, I just... You didn't have tenure yet, right? No, I didn't. But, you know, I thought, look, like, I'm getting... You still stuff.
1: believed, you still believed yeah. in, like... The
2: liberal academic. Yes, I was stupid, you know, like rightly exploring ideas. My friend always just tells me, you know, I'm an idiot. I'm so naive and stupid. And I I was. And now I'm 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 very disgruntled by everything because I and I know other people. I I mean, I'm just talking about my own story because it's obviously the one I know the best. But I know this happened in other people's cases as well. I did everything. You were supposed to do like, you know, I I played by all the explicit rules and my mistake was I was intellectually honest when people asked me what I thought about something. I tried to answer them as well as I could when I had to write about a topic that I was interested in. I tried to write about it as honestly as I could. I always said I could be wrong. I'm not sure about this. We should have an argument about it. And that. Yeah, that, that stuff, it, it's just too bad that you can't do that anymore. And then, yes, you're right. I mean, it's just like it's clearly a collective action dilemma. And it, the thing that disappoints me is that there are a lot of high status people. I mean, like really high status people who know better and they won't use their status. And I think to myself when I'm bitter, sometimes I'm not bitter. Sometimes I am. And when I am, I think, OK. You have tenure. Use it. You know, like
1: that's what it's right. for. Gnome. Man. I'm looking at you, Gnome. Well, no signing that Harper's letter.
2: <laughs> yeah, but no to be I'm not fair,
1: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, my show.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. I, I mean to be fair, dude, like let's say, like Gnome But he could say more. I mean he's you know Well, but that dude seriously put his head out there. I mean he's actually defended people who said really nasty? I mean, like nasty things, and he oh, no, Chomsky? yeah, 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 yeah. at yeah, significant yeah. cost. I'm him. not.
1: I'm not saying that he's he doesn't,
2: you know, put himself on the line. There are some people who don't who signed that letter, though, by the way. There are lots of people. When I read it through, I mean, I think. I'm look, sure the, you
1: know more about them than I do. Yeah,
2: I, I think the letter is better than nothing. But when I read some of the names on it, I, I got a little bit nauseated because I thought, like, come on, dude, you're contributing to some of these cancels.
1: I I felt like the letter was actually more about Trump than it was about cancel culture. I felt like what they were were saying was basically like, if you keep up this misbehavior, then Trump's going to win. And so it felt to me like it was a very disingenuous way of um, like adding that in there. Like if you actually were concerned about academic freedom, why is that relevant? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I I didn't like that either, but I'll do the little bit. I'll defend it a little bit. I understand that they have to like... I, I think it, I think that's the problem. It's the conundrum of trying to appeal to progressives about free speech now, because progressives are so far gone on that topic that when you get like Ch- Chatterton Williams, I think, I think he's pretty laudable on the issue, but he's trying to appeal to a lot of progressives, and so you have to make this kind of milquetoast statement. You have to preface it by saying. We all agree that Trump's the real terror in the world. And by the way, look at what happened. So you make this milk toast statement. You preface it with Trump, and it still causes a fear from Trump. Yeah, they don't
1: care. You're not going to be okay just because you said that. that.
2: That's what I say. It's like, you know what? You have to just think, F it. Like, at some point, you're not going to win these people. It's over what you have to do is stop trying to win that group because it's going to require sacrificing the actual value that you care about and say, you know what? No, we're done with you. Like, we're going to fight you and try to win that argument, but we're not going to persuade you because that's just not going to happen. That's where I am, at least. And I mean, I used to be a a firm advocate of conciliation, like let's work to get these people. But I just think it's not going to happen anymore. It's it's we're past that. You can't, if somebody is going to say that JK Rowling is like some transphobic terrorist, that person's done. We're not going to reach them. You know, like, okay, fine. You're going to think that and we're going to argue against you and hope that we win that cultural battle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I've also come around to just like not saying anything when I hear stuff like that. Um, even people that are close to me, I just, it's not worth fighting that, like, that's not going to be the hill that I die on, like, defending J.K. Rowling's, like, you know, tweets about, uh, you know, trans people. Like, uh, even if I agree with her, even if I know that the position that you're saying is wrong or a misrepresentation of even how a lot of trans people feel, uh, its it, it gets to a point where it is, um, it's so destructive to even have the dialogue or attempt the dialogue that it's better to just go on and do your own thing. But I'm sorry, um, I, well,
2: I know you... But that, I, I, yes, I mean, I totally understand that. But the, the, the problem is that that, like, concedes victory. It, it's like victory of the whiniest. You know what I mean? It's like... Sure, it's sure. Like a, I
1: guess, I guess my, my point is, like, I just don't think that, like... Um, you know, like my, my friend from college's Facebook post actually matters that much. Like, I don't think she's convincing anyone that hasn't already agreed with oh, it. And sure, I don't think yeah, anyone
2: that's, who that's disagrees fair, is changing yeah.
1: their mind. So sure, it's just not worth it to have the argument.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think you have to pick and choose and like, think about like, okay, what are you doing? What is the actual, you know, what are the predictable effects of this or that kind of argument? Right. So, um, I know that, like,
1: you're still in a, a vulnerable position with regard to your, I guess, um, future, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so maybe maybe your perspective on this will change like a year out or a couple years out from this. Uh, maybe I'll have you back. But um, what what can be done? Right. So we've got this cancel culture. It's largely it looks like mediated by technology, by social media, basically the fact that everyone has a phone. We've mm-hmm. got this panopticon now with iPhones in everyone's pockets so everything can get recorded, mm-hmm. and everything that you do online obviously stays on forever. So you have a you have now a history that's trailing behind yeah. you that you didn't have, right? Um, what what can be done? Uh, do you think this needs to be attacked in the realm of uh, I mean, uh, on the realm of obviously it needs to be attacked in the realm of norms, but uh, cultural values? Do you think there needs to be some sort of institutional
2: power? Um, I mean, I, I would get around this. Yeah, so. I would like to see the development of some countervailing institution somehow, And I don't know, you know I don't know exactly how that would play out or will play out, but I'd like to see that. And then I, I mean, I would just say, we can come up with like broad plans, and I think that's a good idea to do so, but those are always hard to instantiate. They take time. You have to collaborate with people, et cetera. So on a personal level, what I say is just try to be intellectually honest and not participate in the cancel part and just have dialogue with people, be respectful, debate, but be honest. And the more that there is, I, I think, uh, you know, you display the behavior that you would like other people to admit. And so... I I can't tell you how many emails or messages I get from people who are like, hey, you know, I saw this or I followed your discussion here and I really liked it. You you were nice, but you were forceful and you said things that I wanted to say, but I can't or whatever. And. Every, for every person who does that, there are probably ten other who see it and think, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's what I want to do." We should be able to talk about these things, and we can do it without being rude to each other. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's what I think is important to do on a personal level. Is what's the cheesy. There, there's a cheesy saying, like, be the change you want to see. <laughs>
1: yeah. Lead, lead by example, find <laughs> right. the others. Yeah. All you of say. these
2: kinds of cheesy sayings that start uh, a
1: manner bund, I don't know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're all kind of sappy and ridiculous, but on the other hand, it's true. And it's what I, it's what I try to do. And in the, you know, I have, I know people who are trying to do some institutional things and I'll participate at if, if we ever get those off of the ground and other people too. And I think that's really important because, of course, you're not going to fight this one individual at a time, right? You have to have some sort of collective power. But if you want to know what each individual can do in his or her own life, just be what you want to see. And I often think about this with a lot of social justice warrior types they're so mean to people and I think you know if you want to increase the amount of social justice in the world, just be nice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know that would be it, like a great start it, it, the the
1: the paradox of the people who are preaching empathy and then display none of it uh, see, on a regular basis is yeah, astonishing.
2: Did you see that um, I mean, it's not that important, but it really illustrates this. There is a Glenn Greenwald t- tweet in which he was just lambasting Ben Shapiro, calling him like literally an idiot and he's stupid and he's soulless. And why was he doing it? Because Ben Shapiro was making the argument that empathy is actually bad for politics. Now, now I thought, OK, so your argument is Shapiro is like what a beautiful soulless example idiot. Yeah, exactly. I, I was just, I was utterly shocked by the apparent unself awareness of that. Um, so, yes, yeah, yeah. be nice to people. It's not that hard. Be respectful in discussion. Empathy
1: is important, you piece of shit. Yeah,
2: exactly. How dare you? I mean, we should murder you for saying empathy is not important. I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, yeah, but I don't have any like grand vision or whatever, you know, like I. I read a lot and think a lot about like the perversion of science in the Soviet Union. And again, I'm not trying to say that it's equally bad here, but there are some similarities. And I try to think about like, OK, well, what could you have done? And the answer sometimes, depressingly, is not a lot. You just have to keep making the same damned argument over and over and over and hope that small L liberalism, not not capital, liberalism, small L liberalism, free speech, free inquiry, due process, rule of law, these values end up triumphing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think this is actually an existential threat to the republic. I mean, in terms of like nation states, uh, you have a huge competitive advantage. If, if, for example, your China and your universities are studying hardcore math and science and ancient Greek and Chinese philosophy and And meanwhile your competitor is uh indulging in post critical theory and just (laughs) create just producing all these degreed young people with no like practical knowledge and just total uh and not not even no practical knowledge, but they don't have any um uh any grounding and even like a deep philosophy of any kind that would
0: be useful. Yeah. So like
2: It's just totally their own country. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even worse than that. It's not even that you, you you have these, you know, now, like, look, let's be clear. There are lots of people getting great educations in STEM fields and who are doing great things in the United States.
1: Well, I, I have a humanities degree, so I'm not or, totally exempt from this,
2: right? And I, I love the humanities, uh, but but it's it's not just that you're you're sort of you know if you read like critical race studies, for example, I mean the shit is fucking meaningless, right? I mean I mean I defy somebody. I, I was reading Cornell West a few days ago, and I was just like, what the fuck does this? And there's just no empirical content to it whatsoever. So not only are you getting this sort of meaningless gobbledygook. But
1: I mean, you're, you're literally turning your brain into mush.
2: Like, yeah, right. And then you, and then, then you're, it's you're actually you're cha- like <laughs> altering
1: your perceptions in a way that like is gonna just make you less functional.
2: I don't know. Yeah, and you're turning against the 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 norms that created your society. Like I, I have to imagine like uh, a, a Martian would look at our country and just think, what are these people doing? Like. They created this amazing society, and now many of the young people think it's the worst thing to ever happen to humanity, you know? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's I know, look, maybe there are some critical theorists. Like, Michel Foucault, I'm not an expert on him. I've read some of his work. Maybe some of these people have something to say. I'm not saying it's all nonsense, but a lot of it is manifestly nonsense, and it's a waste of a lot of human capital.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've done a couple conversations with, um, like, Stephen Hicks and some others on, like, the, the roots of postmodernism and how it ties into critical theory and sort of yeah. those schools of thought kind of co-evolved. Um, but, uh, okay, one, one thing – so we, we are kind of nearing nearing the time here. where We should probably be wrapping yeah, it up I, here. I, I, yeah.
2: But,
1: yeah, I'm sure you have to go. But um, I, I have – one thing that I wanted to get into you with, and maybe you don't have a lot of expertise in this, but you mentioned it earlier, you talked about the decline, or I guess the the extinction of all male coalitions, right, in society. And um, I wanted to ask you what you thought the cultural implications of that might be, and um, whether or not it might be valuable, if, if even though it may not be politically feasible, uh to try to like start reviving them again because I actually think that male companionship mm-hmm. is super duper important and a lot of men mm-hmm. these days are really isolated even from other men
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh I think part of the reason for that is the fact that there are no spaces anymore where men can just be men with nothing but other men
2: right so what do you think what I would say on that is mostly informed speculation sure. but Yes, I, I do think that there clearly, there, there seems to be a problem with some men in modern society, because, it, I mean, it, it it's objectively the case that sort of traditionally masculine traits are sort of less valuable. And that's why men drop out of the, the sort of labor market, let's say, at a higher percentage. I, I mean... More than 30% of men are not even participating in the labor market. That's incredible. Um, and then there is this— That's insane. That would be like a, a war yes. in any other society. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and, and then there's there's this sustained attack on a lot of components of masculinity, right? And it, yes, I mean, men have destructive tendencies, some, of course— but they also have a lot of good tendencies and that male male behavior that just going out and let's throw a football and beat the shit out of each other for two hours <laughs> it's good for people like that's people see that as somehow like retrograde and like oh that boys will be boys bullshit like that's really dangerous no like I think it really is good for people. It's good. You know, you try some stupid things, you get hurt a little bit, but you form these bonds with other people that are hard to replace because you went through hardships together and you went through adventures together and you got in fights with each other. Um, Yeah, so I would like to see something with that and some way of embracing that more. In a positive way, you'd like to get rid of some of the excesses of it. So, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, kicking the crap out of some kid because he's different from you is not a cool thing. And that's something I was that kid a lot. So, yeah. okay, right. You know, and I I, I remember. Taking a few beatings and being whitewashed by the older males, and, you know it's not exactly fun, of course. And you know, I'm throwing eggs at houses—why? Just because it was cool to break yeah, stuff or whatever. Shooting out windows with BB guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those kinds of things that aren't necessarily the most constructive for society, but you know, there's a trade-off there because you lose that, and then you lose a lot of these things that are important for men men do interact in, in a way with each other, that maybe they don't, you know, you get three women in your group and the, the dynamic changes completely. And now that you have women in every workforce, I do think that changes the dynamic. The way that, like, my mom says this, is she she just, like, she cannot imagine how mean men are to each other. She said, "You you guys are so mean to each other. You say nasty stuff. And I'm like, no, that's just how men... That's just how we get along. Like We we make jokes about each other, and we mm-hmm. razz on each other, and that's sort of like a form of play combat. I don't think women are as cool with that, and that's okay, but it means that if you're in a coalition and you have a bunch of women in there, you, you don't have the same interactions that you would have because- yeah. You know, when you're razzing on the woman and you make a comment, maybe it hurts her feelings and that's not what you intended, but that's the result. And so it just changes that dynamic.
1: Yeah. My understanding is that the way that women express uh, aggression tends to be more reputational damage. Yes. So there's a, yeah,
2: yeah, there's a difference there. Yeah. Yeah, And just like the, the joking, like, now, of course there are lots of women who joke and you, you sort of treat people as individuals and you learn who takes the? i are not iron saying into- women aren't funny, you guys. Right, exactly. Exactly. Who who can be ironical and who who's not? Who likes to play back and forth with jokes and who doesn't? Of course, but it just changes the dynamic of a coalition when you include women. And like that's why men like all male clubs from time to time is okay. because you can just go in there and be a male.
1: Yeah. Well, that that's what I'm saying is um I believe uh I don't know is full name but evolving Moloch on twitter yeah uh, will the anthropologist
2: yes why am i i cannot think of his last name for some reason but yeah i know (laughs) i (laughs) know what i'm talking about yeah
1: you guys can find him uh he's at evolving malik um he also he studies secret societies and one of the weird things about secret societies from an anthropological perspective is that they're almost exclusively all male man yeah uh, which is really really weird and obviously i know a lot of like obviously like priestly class and warrior classes and things like that would mm-hmm. have been all male and for a lot of places for almost all of human history. Um And so I, I do think you're right. I think that there is a group dynamic that changes inside. Like when you're in an institution and you're trying to make sense or you're trying to make an important decision, mm-hmm. there is something that changes even if you just throw one woman into the mix. I what? mean, if you have a group full of five guys and let's say, uh, some of those men are single and that woman happens to be attractive. Well, now <laughs> there's these, all these ulterior motives floating around yes. the room and guys are trying to impress her and guys are trying yeah. to look like they're the leader. And like, there's all this weird, uh, sexual, di- sexual competition dynamics yes. that is a subtext that you can't talk about, but yes. it's there and it's affecting the way they're able to coordinate and the way
2: they're able to work together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that, just about like the, the, the sort of mixing of the workplace
1: and it's not think, it's not the woman's fault or that she's being a distraction. No, it's not like exactly it's yeah. the way that the men it's are going to It's just how it works,
2: right? Yeah. And so, like the 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 mixing of the workplace and and I think was has been a positive thing for the most part. But there are trade offs, right? There really is a trade off. So I remember this is obviously pure anecdote, but it illustrates the point when I worked at this this particular grocery store, the, the stockers, the people who put the, the grocery up and, and whatever, uh, they were all men and it was explicitly made that way by the management. And then after a couple of years of working there, that became, it was no longer tenable. So they started to accept women and it changed the way, like it was incredible how much, the the work environment changed from the day we took the first woman into the, the stock unit. Because, okay. as you said, one thing is men start acting a little bit differently because you've got this woman They're not going to be as aggressive. They're not going to be yeah, as they're, mean. they're competing. They start competing in this different way for women's attention. And then some of the jokes that you would tell, you can't tell anymore because they might be offensive to women. And like, understandably so. I mean, some of them are offensive, but if you tell them privately or with a couple of guys, it's like kind of okay. But then you, you know, you include more people and then it's not okay anymore. And by the way,
1: women will have conversations with other women that they're not going to have around absolutely. men. It's absolutely, That's not like it doesn't go both ways. Well, well,
2: that's one thing to, to end here. Cause I do have to yeah, go. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll, okay. But i this, this thought that I've been having for a while about this weird thing this idea that you don't have like different groups in which you can say things that you wouldn't say in another group. Because I've 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 had a lot of people say, well, why would you say it if Don't be it, exclusive? It would offend yeah, don't be exclusive. Why would you say it if it could offend people? And it's like, well, if you're in a group of four people, you can say some things that you're not gonna say in a group of a hundred. And a lot of those things are funny to you if you're in a group of four, but they would be hurtful if there's a group of 100, you know, like the way that people sometimes I'll tell a joke to like a friend and my friend will be like, that's mean. And I'm like, nobody's here who's going to hear it. Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? And like, I get the point, which is like, you don't want to sort of harvest bad thoughts about groups, but. You know what? Sometimes it's OK to say a ribald or offensive joke and nobody's going to hear it. And that's OK. And we can like kind of be happy about that. I just don't like this like growing sense that if you said something mean about women or or this group or that group or whatever to another person, that means you're a bad person. No, we all have things that we like and don't like about each other. And sometimes we like to say them privately and sometimes we like to make a joke. And I think that's okay. And sometimes men make jokes to each other that they wouldn't make with other women. And as you said, I've heard women talk to each other and that shit is crazy. You know, yeah. <laughs> sometimes that's crazy. It's and like that's like seeing
1: fine. through the matrix. Just gonna...
2: Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's fine. So, you know, that's fine. That, I, I don't think that I don't think we should encroach on all of these spaces. We should instead be like, okay, look, like some of your jokes about men are going to be funny, but Mm -hmm. maybe if a bunch of men are around, you're not going to want to talk about them or tell them vice versa.
1: Yeah. Well, I like the way that you phrase that in that last part here, uh, just encroaching on spaces, because it really is this phenomenon of part of tearing down all the walls in society means tearing down all of the privacy, right? And so you don't have any internal privacy. You're not allowed to have a, a, a small group, or even have your own
2: private thoughts. Well, well that that's the that's that sort of like freedom of association, right? To some mm-hmm. degree, now like, is obviously it's different. If you're at a university, you can't be like, oh, we want free association, so we're only gonna hire liberals or whatever. But if you want to like a small group, you can be like, I look. Like, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? Tonight, I would like to be around five dudes and just do what dudes do.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. Well, okay. I am going to let you go, but one last, uh, one last point I want to say, uh, uh, David Fuller actually at rebel wisdom, I think actually is doing all male sort of, um, spiritual, um, you know, like healing type groups where he does a lot of spiritual work and breath work and things like that with, with all male groups. Uh, I don't know if they've also, if they also do co-ed groups, I'm sure he does. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I just know that is a project that rebel wisdom is, 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 ongoing um and so there are other things like this that are happening um bo i wanted to just uh thank you so much for you know coming on the show and telling everybody your story i hopefully uh we'll be hearing more from you i'm sure you'll be on um other people's podcasts and so forth and uh maybe even read some of your work in the future that'll be coming out and uh any any last words here uh before we let you go about uh I, I guess yeah
2: my my last words of wisdom are yeah. I'll make some optimism. give some hope. So give some hope. Don't don't despair so much, you know, these things come and go and and trends rise and fall, so I would just say try to be honest, have fair debate, be cordial, but say your opinion and try to be intellectually true to what you believe.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Bo. Yep, thank you. See ya.